This episode of the Tabletop Submarine Podcast is produced by Cake Pie Games. Cake Pie Games, games that are a piece of cake to set up and easy as pie to teach. Welcome to the Tabletop Submarine, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. Here are your hosts. Voyagers, friends, people who have been traveling the world or listening from all corners of the world. Welcome, welcome my dear friends to the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. It is so good to have you here in our little metal tube of Tabletop Wonderdom. With me as always is my number two co-host, but recently I think about promoting him number one. I I'm a favor of, of moving up in the world in whatever ways I can. So yeah, I'm number two, uh, working toward wonder. <laughs> this is Andrew, and today's guest is very special. It is Pat Marino from The Op. He is the designer and director of Hobby Games over there, and he's got some really cool stuff that he's been working on, and we're excited to hear more about the stuff that he's got. So welcome to the show, Pat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So we have a bunch of games that we know are out there, plus you've got some new stuff coming out. But I'm really excited to talk about the art project. We're all excited to talk about Express Route. Uh, you've had some success with Cuphead and some other stuff like that. So let's hear about what you got currently that you want to talk about right away. Because we want to tell our audience about the cool stuff you got. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's so much because I have a variety of games I designed myself. Um, and really, I started at the app as a game designer. My role now as director of hobby games is a lot more focused on inventor meetings, picking product, kind of building a line of hobby product. So I get to also be very excited about a lot of games that aren't my own, uh, but that I get a, nice. a pretty involved role in finding, developing, working with our art team to really bring them to life. So um, as, as you mentioned, my most recent design that I did that's out is Express Route, and that's a... Um, mm-hmm cooperative pickup and deliver game, which I think puts a little bit of a new twist on it. A lot of pickup and deliver games are sort of who can get the most stuff to where it's going fastest for the most points. And this one is you all have to work together to keep the company from collapsing and keep up with customer demand by delivering your packages. Uh, that one came out at Gen Con. And then uh, later this week, uh, it's, we're, we're Tuesday here on Thursday of this week. So it'll already be out by the time this uh, airs. The Art Project, which is a game that we are bringing to the U.S. in partnership with Lumberjack Studio in France, uh, which is another cooperative game, uh, one to six player, about recovering stolen art from an evil criminal organization. Got beautiful Vincent Dutre art. It's designed by Benoit Turpin and Florian Suryex. So just a dream team of designers there uh, with uh, one of the top artists in board games. So you can't really beat that. Um, and it has six unique maps. So it's one of those games that has huge replayability because each map introduces new scenarios and rules that put a twist on it. So once you've sort of mastered the Japan map, which is the starting one, you've got a whole lot to explore still in that box. I love it. And I think the theme is very cool. Recovering of stolen art. Has it got like kind of a pandemic vibe because of the, you know, mitigating all these different things? Or is it completely different in the way that it plays? Um, it, it does to an extent. I mean, I, I think, once you have a co-op game that has maps, you're going to have people sort of making that comparison of, oh, it's pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few things that are different. You don't have asymmetric player powers in this one. Um, so what they did in order to really push communication is each round, every player draws two cards. 
And those cards have a resource spend, a city that you'll add villains to, and then a resource gain. So you'll have to kind of go top mm. to bottom in those. And every player is going to play one of their two cards and discard the other. And there's no turn order. So you can't show your cards to anybody else, but you're allowed to freely discuss them. So all of the players have to be in constant communication to sort of say, well, if we get more walkie-talkies, then I can play a really good card that will not add any villains to the map, but lets us get the resources we need to do something else we want to do. And so then players are like, oh, I have a card that adds walkie-talkies. And then what kind of complicates all of that is every card has clues. Uh, they have icons that match the cities on the map, and those clues are helping you find where the stolen art is. So whatever card mm. you play goes into a row face down that only shows the clues. And when you get three matching symbols, you add a piece of art to the map. So now you've got this extra layer of like, well, this card's really cool because it gets us the resources we want. But this other card in my hand gets us the third clue. We need to place a piece of art where we already are, which makes it easier for us to recover. And, you know, so you're kind of making some decisions there. The more art you recover, the stronger the villains get, but the cheaper it is to purchase more allies to add to your pool. So there's a lot of balancing and decision-making going on in it. That sounds really cool. So Josh, does this uh, spark your interest because you're, I know you're a Fury of Dracula guy? I know it's not a moving target, but is your deduction and cooperative aspect kicking in? Yes, it is. It's hard. I've been I've been sort of on a downward tirade with deduction oh. recently. I think it's because I realize I'm I'm not the smartest <laughs> cookie. <laughs> I, I definitely been wanting to try the art project just because you know the you guys killed it on the yeah, cover. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous and Paul. It's probably my it's probably my second favorite Vincent Trait artwork piece. I mean, I just have a I have a fondness for the Whale Riders cover mm-hmm. and just how much joy it brings me. But like that art project cover, like I was like, wow, that is that is extremely extremely drawing. So once it actually releases, I plan on hopefully convincing my FLGS to do a demo to copy so I can teach mm-hmm. it to people. But we'll see if they've listened to me <laughs> anymore. They probably don't. But that's that's okay. I don't work. I don't work there. I'm just a contractor there now. So as the director of hobby games, Pat, what is, what is, what do you look for? What is, what makes a game quote unquote worthy of being the ops line of games? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Obviously you both have have pitched me games in the past. And so we've had that opportunity to connect a little bit, but um, it's probably the number one question I get if, if not number two to how did you get your job? Um, So um (laughs) What we look for specifically for the hobby line is, and from a complexity standpoint, gateway to gateway plus, right? Like if if the op were to sign the next Tala Serta game, I think a lot of people would kind of do a double take of what? You know, what are you guys doing over there? That doesn't really fit the, the history that we have as a brand. Um, but with that said, I'm looking for things that are like very broadly appealing and approachable because one of the things I focus on most in my role is barrier to entry, right? When you think about the end consumer, before they even decide that board games are how they're going to spend their money in leisure time, they have all these different options, right? They can go to the movies, they can watch sports, yeah. they can go to a bar, they can go out to dinner, whatever. So they have to decide first that they want to spend their money on a game. Then they have to decide they want to spend their money on our game. So our game has to be appealing to them in their budget, accessible somewhere where they shop, and then after all of that, they have to be able to get it to the table, right? Like, and we've all, mm-hmm. I think, purchased games that it's like, aspirationally, I'd love to play this. And then your gaming group is like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing that, you know? And you're like, well, someday, maybe I'll make the right friends to play this great game. So I try to think about all of those steps of like, are, are we putting a theme and artwork on it? 
that you can easily bring to almost any game group and say, hey, do you want to play this game? And they go, wow, that looks great on the table, right? Like I often give the mm -hmm. Flamecraft example because when I taught my gaming group that, I had the game set up before they showed up and I've got the nice deluxe edition with the metal coins and all the wooden resources and the, the dragon minis and stuff. And before I even said a word about how the game works or what it was, people were picking up the components and looking at them and picking which dragon they yeah. wanted to be. And I was like, we're in, we're going to have a good game night. Yeah. This is great. You know, so that's really the kind of thing I'm looking for is, is that immediate connection that people can feel with the game and then to kind of deliver on that promise is the rules have to be very quick to teach, but the decision space mm -hmm. has to be big, right? So it's like, okay, yes. on your turn, you can do one of three things. And people are like, great, I've got it. And then when their turn rolls around, they're like, ooh, which of those three things should I do and how? You know, and suddenly they're really making meaningful decisions so that when they take the lead or don't take the lead, they can see why that happened and make better decisions next time and feel strategic and clever about what they're doing in the game. So that's, that's the big picture thing. And I know I always tell people this and they're like, Oh, great. So you want the next perfect game? It's like, well, don't we all, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what we're <laughs> yes. going for. Yeah. But at least you're able to articulate what that perfect game is. There are a lot of people out there just said, I want the next game, but they don't know what that is. So it sounds like you've at least narrowed down what makes that game right for you. And I appreciate that. Yeah, we, I do hear a lot in the industry of like, I want the next wingspan. It's like, well, do you want the next wingspan in terms of complexity, theme, art, componentry, experience between the players or profit margin? Mm -hmm. Right. Like which, which of those things are you going for? And they're not all necessarily the same. And I think sometimes it's like, I want to sell as many units as Wingspan sold. It's well, of course, but like you've got to have the right game to do that. And it's, it's sometimes difficult to figure that out, but, and I will say it's competitive, right? Like this is a, a big thing we've noticed is when those games come along, like we'll get an inventor game or a partner game and we'll play it and we fall in love with it. And then we reach out and say, okay, we want to make an offer. And they're like, okay, well you can get in line with the other 12 offers I already have on the table. And we go, Oh, okay. Um, that's a, a sign that we're going after the right thing, but B makes it sometimes a little bit more challenging. Um, I will say Art Project was one of those. Like we saw the cover, I actually saw it go up on BGG before we even knew the game was available to pick up for US distribution. We played it, fell in love with it. They asked if we wanted a partner and we were like, yes, of course we do. And then we found out a whole bunch of other people wanted to. And then after we announced that we were the, the US distribution partner, I had a few of my other publisher friends reach out and they're like, like sort of shaking their fist at me. like. How dare you take that from me? And it's like, well, we all knew it was a good game. Somebody was going to make it happen. I'm just <laughs> glad this time it was us. You know, you bastard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm glad that you got a hold of it. So with your game lines, then, I, I just something that also talking about what the OP is known for, the very approachable games. Something you're also known mm -hmm. for is bringing, in my humble opinion, some of the best IP games to the market. Yes. So you have like the mm -hmm. Rising series that has Plankton Rising, which is a SpongeBob game, the Dark Side Rising, Thanos Rising, but you also have like Avatar Rising. And then, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a couple different ones that, you know, the Cuphead game which you designed. How do you guys approach choosing IPs and designing for them so that they are in my opinion always quality? Yeah, it's uh I, I appreciate you saying that. It's a very difficult business I would say to be in. I think a lot of inventors sometimes and even other publishers are like oh, IP is great because it sells itself. And it's like, oh boy, that's not quite how that works. <laughs> um, and there's sometimes a misconception too that when you when you work with an IP that the IP will do all of your marketing and promotion for you and they don't. Um, the, their expectation yeah. is 
that basically you're going to pay them a royalty for the privilege of working with their brand. They get full approval rights on everything you do, and you have to make the money to reach usually a minimum guarantee within the contract. So those royalties have to earn out against a minimum. And if you don't hit that minimum, you better be prepared to write a check to cover the balance. So it's it's not a perfect science. And we try very hard to be very smart about the IPs we pick. In the hobby channel, um, I try to look for things that have longevity because the amount of work it takes to develop a hobby game is, is pretty great. And what I don't want to do, and we've done it a bit in the past, sometimes you develop a, a hobby game and it's got a year or two of shelf life. And that's usually the length of the contract, but then you're not looking to renew that contract. It's sort of like that game's had its time, it did its thing, and we're going to move on to something new. That works really great for our co-brand channel, which handles all of like our license monopoly and clue games and munchkins and things like that. They're better able to execute quickly on an IP, but for mm-hmm. hobby, again, we're looking for things that have a little bit of evergreen. So that's why we like like Avatar, Harry Potter, Disney, those kinds of properties that are not going anywhere anytime soon. And when the games do well, like Hogwarts Battle, I mean, we launched that in 2016. Here we are seven years later, still selling copies of the mm-hmm. core game, the expansions and everything else. So um, so we try to think of it from that perspective first. And then, of course, there's a question of like, do the people who like this thing like board games? Because there are IPs out there where we kind of have that debate of like, there's a huge fan base. None of them are going to spend 40 bucks on a board game, right? Like, it's just not, right. not going to be the right thing. Sometimes it's like, yeah, that's great. It's it's a great junior IP, but parents don't want to spend $50 on a hobby game with a junior IP that their kids aren't going to understand. By the time they grow into it, they've grown out of it. You know, there's some challenges there. Um, and then, of course, once we find something we like, we have to pitch the business to to our partners in the in the IP world and say, please, please let us make this thing and, and help them understand. Because not all of those partners are gamers, right? Like a lot of them are handling yeah. licensed product in other ca- categories. They're handling plush and t-shirts and play sets and, you know, video games and all kinds of other things. So it's not as easy to say, we just want to make a, an engine builder with worker placement. And they're going, what are you talking about? And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. it's a game that plays like this. And it's similar to that. And, you know, we have to do some training around that to help them understand sometimes those pieces. Every once in a while, we get a rare partner who is a big hobby board gamer and they want to like collaborate like a creator who will work with us so um that always like really elevates things when you have a an ip holder who is the creator of the ip even sometimes on our monopoly and clue games we get that so um like when we did bob's burgers clue the show team was like great we want to do a custom cover that looks like all the characters are having a mystery dinner night and they really wanted to elevate it and it's like those experiences are awesome but sometimes it's sort of here's your style guide here's your rules make a game that fits within that boundary set, but also serves the fan base really well. And that can be tricky sometimes, but um, it's also as a designer, sometimes it's nice to have the boundaries. It's like, you can only work within this confine. It's like, oh, okay, I, I can just zero in and then do that to the best of my ability rather than you could make anything in the whole universe. It's like, well, where do you start? Right. So. Yeah. It's an old adage that creativity comes from restrictions, right? Like that's one of the things where you have to have some restrictions. Otherwise you can't know where to start. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like make anything you want. Okay. Um, call me back in five years when I've decided what that thing is. So I'm intrigued by how Nakatomi Plaza came into place because this is a game that I've bought a couple times, one for friends and family, but also we did a trivia night and I made it the prize for trivia night. So tell me how Nakatomi Plaza and Die Hard came in because 
Die Hard's one of my favorite Christmas movies, and don't ever tell me that it's not a Christmas movie. But uh, it's great. So how did that come about? Yeah, so we we were having kind of this debate, right, when we were exploring all of the IP and the universe and, and what we might work with. And as I said, like, generally we lean towards things that are, like, sort of evergreen. And Die Hard came up because it's sort of like, there's been, like, an Escape from New York game and some things like that, but there's mm-hmm. not there hadn't really been a, a Die Hard game. And we're like, okay, well, maybe there's a reason. Like, sometimes we were like, oh, no one's ever thought of it. It's like, no, everyone's thought of it, and the IP holder just won't allow it or, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sean Fletcher and I were um, – Fletch was at the op at the time. He's moved on to Ravensburger, but um, he was a designer on our staff, and we were talking about it and, like, how we can make it a game. And we reached out to our friends at Fox and said, you know, can we – can we make Die Hard? And they said, yeah, yeah, you can do that. Um, you know, there's really no restrictions on the brand. The only limitation is you can't use a photo image of Bruce Willis. Like he's his own IP basically, right? Like he has to sign off and you have to pay a royalty. Mm-hmm. And that's not uncommon in a lot of IP that actors, actresses protect their likeness rights. So we said, yeah, we can work with that. We can do custom art. We can make a game. Um, and, and make that happen. And the funny thing is like, we had to do the pitch, right? Like this is the style of game we want to make. So we went to Fox and Fox is located at one Fox Plaza in Los Angeles. And it's mm-hmm. in the Nakatomi Plaza building. So the, mm-hmm. the building that the whole film takes place in is one Fox Plaza in LA. Um, so we're literally in Nakatomi Plaza, like presenting a diehard game to the Fox team and they're like, yep, yeah, you can do everything you want to do, except we have one restriction other than Bruce Willis. And they said, you can't use the building. And we said, what do you mean? The, okay. the whole film takes place, Nakatomi Tower. Like, it's it's the thing, right? Like, we're literally in that yeah. building right now. And they're like, right. But they said, even though Fox is here in this building, we don't own the building. We lease the space. The building is owned by another corporation. And they oh. only license it out in limited, like, capacities and so you would have to pay an additional royalty and get additional approvals and go through like a process with them. And they said, just to let you know, it's, it's probably unlikely that they would approve it for this usage. And so we were just kind of having like a, a laugh about the fact that like I could walk outside right now in the parking lot and take a photograph of the building, but I can't use that in the game because it's like a protected IP. So we were able to do a, and you can do this a lot. It's like, it's indicative of the building, but if you look at the, the, art on that box cover it's not exactly the building right it's not a photograph or like a a recreation one-to-one but it sort of gives you that sense of it Um, and we actually started the game was uh, you you brought up fury of dracula when the game started it was a hidden movement game and one person Mm. was bruce willis and you didn't know where they were and the other players were the thieves and they were trying to find bruce willis because that felt like the film to us right it's like but then we realized this really weird thing when we played it is like Bruce Willis is hidden the whole movie, but he's also on screen the whole movie. And it felt very mm-hmm. weird to not see Bruce Willis or know where he was when he's the main character. And it's just like, yeah, he's somewhere and the thieves are moving around. The more we played it, the more we realized like, no, no, we need to know he's there, but not have him be so easy to kill because he, he it's die hard, right? Like he has to die hard. Yep. So uh, we switched up the mechanics quite a bit uh, about partway through because the, the playtester feedback was like, okay, but where is he? You know, where's John McClane? He's not here. And it's like, well, he's there. He's just invisible. And it just felt kind of bizarre. So uh, we tweaked that one quite a bit. But you'll notice for those people who've seen images or played it, um, we very intentionally made the uh, 
the miniatures red and green. We added red green elements to the to the board art to really give it that like, yep, it's it's the Christmas board game. Where, like our hope was people would break mm-hmm. it out every Christmas time and and play a little bit of Die Hard around the Christmas tree or you know whatever it may be, so that it has some longevity there too. Because that's always when the film's back on and on TV and everything. Oh else. yeah, so yeah. It's on the lineup of things that we watch every Christmas. There's only a couple of things. And of course, you watch a couple of Hallmark specials, but Die Hard is the way you counteract that, right? They got to have the the two different sides of that. And I love also one of my favorite parts is having the timer be Hans falling down the tower. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much for that. So once a year, I get to break that out and play that and get to enjoy it. And that's wonderful. So thank you for that. Awesome. So you recently, the op, I guess not you specifically, but the op made a pretty big announcement that you're excited to talk about. Can we go into a little more detail about what that is? Yeah, so we um, we have a new game coming out in 2024. We have a lot of new games coming out in 2024 that we are super excited about. Uh, but earlier I mentioned how sometimes there is competition for the hot new prototype that everybody wants. Um, that happened at Gamma this year. There was an inventor going around with a prototype that they were thinking of bringing to Kickstarter themselves. And they thought, well, maybe I'll show this around at Gamma and see what people think. And very quickly, they were inundated with offers to publish this game. And uh, the game is Gnome Hollow from Eamon Anderson, which I think yes. you, you ah, might have heard of. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so this one has a lot of buzz already as an unpublished game. And we are thrilled that we were able to Basically work out a, a great deal with Ammon to bring the game to the op. It will be a, a big Gen Con 2024 release focus for us. You'll see it also at SN24. And we are starting the marketing now because we believe so strongly in this game and everything that's behind it. Um, mm-hmm. And so Ammon's been bringing this around to shows. He's been uh, demoing it, playtesting it, doing a lot of development work on it mm-hmm. for quite a while now. He did all the artwork. It's one of the most beautiful prototypes, I think, most of us have ever seen because it's got all this original watercolor art in it. Um, and it checks every box, right, that we're looking for at the op. Very easy to teach, deep decision-making, approachable artwork and theme, approachable gameplay, um, ability to put some upgraded components and some nice features into it. So um, it was just like a slam dunk, like we knew we wanted it. Uh, and the interesting thing is sort of the way this played out is, um, as I said, Ammon was basically like flooded with offers from publishers. Everybody wanted to pick up this game and he was getting a little overwhelmed and, and he was walking around at, at Gamma Trade Show and bumped into Tony Cerbriani from our staff. And Tony was looking at uh, a thing called the last game board. It's like a digital, put all your board games on this tabletop digital thing, like a giant iPad kind of setup. Mm-hmm. And so Ammon just kind of walked over to see what they were looking at. He and Tony started chatting. Tony was like, boy, you look, you look like you got a lot going on. What's happening? They started chatting and he was like, Oh, well, I'm showing my game. And all these people are like super excited about it. And I don't really know what to do. Cause I thought I was going to kickstart it. And Tony was like, sure, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what the different options are. And just kind of like helped him talk through all that. And partway through the conversation, he's like, I should let you know that I am also a publisher and would be interested. But if you want me to bow out and just give you advice on how to approach all this, we can do that. Cause that's how Tony is. Like, he's just a great guy like that. And he's like, if, if you want me to just take my hat out of the ring and just be here to guide you through the process. That's that's an opportunity. So obviously, as they got talking, they formed a really nice relationship. And Ammon said, well, you know, I, I like you guys. Like, keep your hat in the ring. Let's talk about it. And it took quite a while. I mean, there was a lot of things to consider. We really wanted to make sure that Ammon was well cared for in the, the deal that we were able to work out. We wanted him very, very involved in the development process, 
the art development mm -hmm. process. So as I said, it's a beautiful prototype. Um, but of course, with our art director's guidance and stuff, they're working through new illustrations, some new graphic design work, um, anything we can do to elevate the game a little bit more. Um, but it is going to be, I think, probably the biggest thing we do in 2024. And that's saying a lot considering the rest of our line and how strong it is. So uh, we are pumped for him. We're pumped to see that. Um, I saw Play the Game HQ just dropped a video already saying after playing the prototype, they think it's going to be game of the year 2024, which is really exciting for us because that was just based mm -hmm. on they saw it at Gamma and wanted to play it and show it off. So um, big things to come with that one for sure. What's Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Hold on, Joe. Let me just go by this no, one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I love to hear that. And um, so those of us who are game designers, we play test each other's games all the time. And there are a couple of games that we all hear about. And that was one of them. So even though I've never play tested this game personally, I've been on the lookout to try to play test this one. And it's not that it's impossible to do. It's just, you know, things don't line up all the time. But I've heard great things about the, him as a designer. I've heard great things of that design. So really glad you picked that up. But that's one of the ones that people are talking about. So I love it. Yeah, at one point I was talking with Ammon because I've been wanting to play the game for a little bit actually, and I think at one point he had over like thirty to thirty over thirty publishers wanting this game. I, I just extremely overwhelming. When I was able to actually hear that you guys got a hold of it, I was able to you know kind of finagle my way through the Facebooks and figure out who it was. I got super <laughs> excited. So, and what's really got me pumped for this is that Corey Thompson, who you know does Board Games Insider and Dice Tower Hour. Just ten hours. So mm -hmm. this is a strong contender for the spiel. Which, if this does the spiel, that's going to be a huge, huge thing. Not only for the op, but for like you know, just Ammon in general. So I'm, I'm pumped yeah. for this next year for sure. Yeah, it's it's like the dream of every designer, right? We all we all want the spiel, and we we want to have that trophy and or the Kenner spiel, whatever one you can get your hands on, right? Um, and it's been interesting for me going from sort of designer to now director of a hub where. I went from, I want it as a designer to, I just want to bring it home to the op, you know, and if, and if I can do that for Gnome Hollow and, and help Ammon's game get there and get that recognition, that would just be great because I think it'd be great for him. I think it'd be great for us as a company. I think the game is deserving of awards, which is why mm -hmm. we signed it, you know, and as I said, and you mentioned, like there was a lot of publishers involved. It, it was a, a tough decision for him. We feel very, very blessed that he chose us uh, over many very strong options. Um, and it's nice because I think we're going to be able to do some really nice things with some international partners right out of the gate to have the game available in multiple languages and, and really do a big worldwide distribution. So we'll be working through that in the coming months as well. And I think because the game has awareness already, there's a lot of publishers who already know they want it. There's distributors already talking about knowing they want it. We just don't see that ever. You know, I think that it's something that the design community really wants to pay attention to is how did he do that? Right. And I've seen that question come up, like, how did you get this much attention? How do you have distributors who already know about your game? How do you have retailers who know about your game? Like, how did that all come to be? And I think it's a lot of it is the grind of going to a lot of shows, showing it to a lot of people, showing it to the right people. You know, it, it takes a lot of work to do that, but it's doing all those things and having the right game. Right. Which is a, a tricky thing to do, but it's definitely a model. I think more designers should pay attention to and see if they can mimic because it also from a publisher standpoint, it's easier to sign and, and pursue a game that has awareness than to start from mm -hmm. ground zero of no one's heard of this game. We love it. And now we have to make sure we communicate that to the broader audience of this. You're going to love it too, right? This one kind of came the other way where we already had people saying, we don't care who's publishing it. We just want it in our store. And it's like, great. 
we'd like to be that company then. Yeah. yeah, that's one of those weird double-edged sword things, though, because obviously you want the game to be great, and it takes time to make it great. But as soon as you make it what you think is great and you start pitching it, sometimes it just takes on a life of its own, and then you need to stop pitching it because it's going somewhere. And then other times it takes two years of development to get there, and now you've been to every show. So it's not like a one-size-fits-all situation, but I agree that the more people that can see your product or see your game and it's already in a good place, the better off you are in all ways. So I agree with that. Well, the, the challenge is there for us too, right? Like people already know this game is great. So it's the pressure is on us now as the publisher to keep it great and make it greater if we can. But, you know, there's always the like fear of, well, everybody heard this game was great. And if anything is not great about it, there's going to be some, some focus back on us. It's like, what did you guys do? You know, so we are pulling out all the stops, book marketing, art, production, like everything we can do to really uphold what is so special about the game. Please tell me you guys are dressing up as gnomes because with, with the, the perfect wave, you guys are all, are you going to have like a gnome themed booth? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it, it comes up a lot actually, because we, we did do the Hawaiian shirts at Gen Con this year. We had a surf like Tiki Hut themed booth uh, at Gen Con. And so when, when we decided, you know, obviously when you have a huge title, you want to do a big Gen Con and Essen release in, in the fall, we're like, okay, we got to dress up the booth. What's it going to look like? Are we wearing gnome hats? Are we going to get like tunics? Are we going to build like a gnome mushroom house? Like what's, what's this thing going to look like? So I know our, our events team is already working through that because there was also some debate of like, okay, gnome hats would be cool, but how long are they going to last, right? Like when we look at our demo staff right. and say, here's your gnome hat, they're like, yeah, I'll wear that for an hour, but eight hours a day, four days straight. I, I don't know, you know, but we do want to do something really thematic again, because we got a lot of great feedback on the booth. We used to do a pretty like mm -hmm. businessy kind of company style booth that was focused on, on selling product and less thematic. And when we did the theme this year, it just, it went over so well that we're like, okay, we got to commit and do this for future shows as well. Yeah. I would happily buy a Hawaiian shirt. You guys nailed those shirts. They were good looking and they were subtle in a way, but at the same time, they were really kind of vibrant and lively. So you nailed that. So yes. And I agree. It's more fun to approach a booth that has the theming and has that feel and something that draws you in from across the room versus just another booth you walk by. So you guys nailed it. Thanks. Yeah. The, there was a lot of demand for those Hawaiian shirts. And of course, you know, the ones we had left by the end of the show were like, well, we've got some, some like odd sizes, like the really tiny ones or like the, the super XL ones or whatever. Um, and we had a couple of people who were like, I don't care if it fits. I just want one. It's like, oh, okay, here, you know, have an extra. Um, so we we're trying to figure out like, what is that? Cause I don't know that gnome hats are the same appeal as a Hawaiian shirt that you might wear again, you know, sort of like a, yeah, I might wear that for a little bit at the show, but I'm not going to wear it around as a as an attendee. Um, so we've we've got to put some thought into it because we want to do something that has that draw and that appeal. And maybe if we come up with the right thing, we'll order enough extras that we can do it as like a promo item alongside the game or something fun like that. Andrew, this is this mm -hmm. is the issue with talking with people who we we're really familiar with is that we just keep going and going <laughs> and enjoying because I could keep talking like this with Pat forever right. just about the stuff, but we have a story we need to get to. So, you need to check the instruments. Yeah, we need to check the instruments. Let's head into our... We haven't even gotten to the pre-launch yet. Let's head into our pre-launch and talk about games we played recently. The pre-launch. Get to know us and our guests. In the pre-launch, we talk about one game we played recently, and we give our thoughts on it. I'll go ahead and start this thing off, because I know, I know Andrew doesn't like ending on negative notes, so I'll start off so, yeah. that, we can, <laughs> so that we can... Uh, Get that out of the way. So I recently played Humanity from Bombex, Ooh. which is this 
space thing. It's it's a space game where you're trying to expand your base on the moon Titan, which is a okay. Jupiter game. So I was excited to play this actually because Bombix recently released Sea Salt and Paper, which Pandasaurus you know ah. brought over here, and I adore right. Sea Salt and Paper. It's in contention for my game of the year, just how beautifully simple it is. So I was like, okay, let's see what they can do complexity, and I was thoroughly unimpressed with this game, mm. meaning that I have no idea I the. I did a critique on Level Up Board Game Podcast as a guest host with Patrick Hepner, and I summed it up saying that I don't see a reason why this game needs to exist, which Oof. I think, yeah, no, it's a harsh criticism, but that was how exactly how it felt. It was, it felt like it wasn't a bad game. It was actually very well designed, but there was no stand-up moment where everything came to a head. It was just, it was kind of just like eating toast. With no nothing else on it, it's just okay. Yeah, this is toast. I guess it passed for toast. But where's the pizzazz? Where's the where's the thing that's supposed to grip me in? I think they relied too much mm-hmm. on the the table presence of like because it has like this arm that like swings around that and like helps you determine what towels coming out. It really didn't do anything for me. The artwork was good. It was good artwork, but it felt bland and almost there's nothing behind it. It, mm-hmm. it 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 was everything wrong with the games industry that's just pumping out games to try to catch up on a trend. And mm-hmm. I think half of it goes with the presentation of it and what it was trying to do. Just It's just another space game that doesn't need to exist. And it's sad because Bombix is producing some great games right now and this just wasn't one of them. I don't – me and Patrick struggled to figure out who this game was for and who, who we'd recommend this game to because there's just – 10 other games that do it better and are more enjoyable. But that was Humanity from Bombex. Sorry to say, can't recommend it. I don't see a future for it in the gaming industry. But Pat, let's talk about something more positive. How about you? How about you take it from here now? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It's it's always tough when you have that experience, right? It's like you, you want to like a thing and it just doesn't have that X factor. We see that a lot with even submissions sometimes. It's like you play, it's like it functions. Oh, yeah. It's a game. It does what it said it would do. I don't need to play it again. And if that's sort of the experience, it's, it's tough to get behind it. But I had a very different experience with this game, which is Sky Team that I played recently. Mm-hmm. So Sky Team was definitely the hype at both Gen Con and Essen. Everybody was competing to get copies of it. They were selling out pretty quickly. In Absolutely. Um, for those that don't know, Sky Team is a two-player game only, which normally would be kind of limiting. But in this case, it works because... In the game, one player is the pilot, the other player is a co-pilot, and you are trying to safely land a plane. Um, and mm-hmm. it it seems like, you know, with all the themes we have now where there's all kinds of craziness going on, it's like, nope, all you're doing is landing a commercial plane. Like, you're a Delta pilot, put that thing on the <laughs> ground, that's it. But what makes it kind of interesting is each player is rolling dice behind their screen, and you can't, once you've rolled the dice, you can't speak to your teammate. You can just place dice onto the control panel, and every die you play has to be kind of balanced or offset by dice that your teammate is playing so that, you know, you're trying to figure out like, well, if I play here, it's probably a safe play because odds are you have at least one die that's higher than a three. So you can put that die here. And sometimes you're placing dice to sort of communicate like there's a real reason I'm putting this here. And if you think about why I would do such a crazy thing, it should give you a hint about what other dice I might have behind my screen. Yes. And, uh, What's kind of cool about it is because of the way it works, um, I have a copy and my brother has a copy and and we live several states apart. He's in New York and I'm in Georgia. 
and I just put a top-down camera over the control panel. He rolled his dice on his screen. I rolled my dice on mine. We couldn't obviously see each other's dice. We just played over Google Meet. Um, and it was a great way for the two of us to just play a thinky game together. And because we have like the sort of brother dynamic, there was a lot of that, like, I really like Yomi in games where you got to get in the other player's heads. And even in a cooperative yep. sense, it's like, okay, why is my brother doing the thing he's doing? And there's always that, you got to be like, well, of course it's because he's an idiot. No, 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 no. It's because he's trying to tell me something, you know, and you, you kind of figure that out. So right. um, we were able to successfully land the plane in the first scenario. And, you know, you got to like clear planes off the runway and time it right and do all these different things. And it was like, it was compelling. It was interesting. It wasn't, I, I would say that hard to win the first scenario when you have a, a teammate that you gel with pretty well. But then we, of course, immediately were like, okay, mm -hmm. where are all the other scenarios in this? Because there's different airports that are more difficult, and they've kind of scaled them to how difficult they are to land at in the real world. And then you start realizing there's all these modules like wind shear and weather. And, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, this gets real hard real fast, you know, and it sort of simulates all these different challenges that pilots face. Um, but it felt mechanically, it felt clever and new. Thematically, it felt very different. So it's one that I, I mean, the components were generally pretty nice. There's a couple things like uh, there's these little toggle switches you have on your control panel that are the tiniest little pieces of chip I've ever seen that you use to like switch. Oh. Um, I immediately pulled cubes out of my uh, Terraforming Mars game because they fit perfectly. And I just put the, the acrylic cubes in, which made it a little bit more user friendly. But other than that, really, I have, yeah, I have nice. no complaints about this one. I would happily play it again. I'm very eager to check out those scenarios when I get some time and see, you know, I almost want the failure. Like you just want to experience like a level that's like, wow, we crashed the plane. That was terrible. Let's try again, you know, and to give it another shot. So yeah, mm -hmm. Sky Team is one that I would highly recommend. One of the few times in life you want to see crashes. Okay, I get it. Very nice. All right, so I have been playing what I've been highly, highly looking forward to, and it's finally out. And I finally got a chance to try it. It is Moon River, which is the successive version of the more gamery King Domino. So what makes this one interesting in a couple different things is one, you're building from the bottom up instead of from the middle out. So you already have less options for where you can go. On top of that, it's got a little more take that where you can actually steal each other's cattle. You can swap tiles and force people to take lose tiles we want to take. Um, and it's really interesting because you also are drafting two pieces of the domino. So you can draft the first side and then you can draft any other side you want to, to go with it. And then you have to pair them together and then place them. Uh, this one felt more gamery. It felt a little deeper while you're still kind of doing the same things, but you still have that whole diminishing return and trying to keep sets of things and stuff like that. So I really like it. I also think it has a uh, big learning curve. Like the first game you play is going to be terrible. The second game will be better and the third one will be much better. But my scores were like, a hundred points in the first game, which seems like a lot, but it's not. I think I had 230 in the second game. And I had 350 in the third game. So it definitely is not a game that's friendlies for beginners, but once you have everybody on the same page, I think it's a really cool game to watch happen and, and really an interesting way of playing the King Domino way, but better. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment. I, I got to play this one. Um, Mondo Davis lives locally here. He's another game designer and he does review content. Nice. So he got an early copy and, and brought it over to one of our game nights. We got to play it. And uh, it's similar to what you said. My first game, I got destroyed. Like, I did not realize how important mm -hmm. the um, the different characters were to, like, multiplying your score. Nice. I was like, oh, they give you a couple extra points. It's like, oh, no, they multiply 
the points that you have, they double them. And then you mm-hmm. get another guy, it triples them. And, and you can really score huge points on that. I was just like, I'm just building a nice little ranch for my cattle and having a good time. And, and you know, we told about the scores. I was like, oh, I played very wrong. Uh, but I talked it to some people at the op. We played it's on Board Game Arena now. And uh, when I taught it, because I played so badly, I was able to kind of give some like, okay, these things are very important from what I've learned. Like, focus on that. I think that helped mm-hmm. a couple of those players kind of jump in a little, sort of maybe on the second game scoring-wise rather than the first. Like, they got to skip that hurdle. But um, I, I think I did still end up winning by a little bit just from having that experience. So I would agree. It's a little more gamery, but I really liked it. I thought it was a good one. Well, my instruments are finally ready. Let's go ahead and jump into Pat's story with the dive. Pat, the helm is yours. Regale us with tales of tabletop yore. All right. This was a, a tough thing to think about, right? I've, I've been designing games since 2010. When I sort of mm-hmm. rediscovered board gaming, I played a lot as a kid and, and was sort of a, an obsessive Monopoly player, believe it or not, and studying all the strategies and the math to beat my cousins in Monopoly. I played Magic the Gathering and all that kind of stuff. And then college happened and I kind of got out of board games. And then Got back in 2010, very quickly after discovering Catan and Agricola, started designing games. And I was like thinking about all the things that I've experienced from then through, you know, working at the op for six years. And I was like, what am I going to talk about? And I was listening to the the Alan R. Moon episode. And I was like, boy, I wish I could talk about winning two Spiel the Yard Awards. But uh, not, not everybody can do that. That's that's Alan's memory, not mine. So uh, I was like, okay, what, what am I going to focus on? Um, but I I think the one that really stood out that I wanted to get into was that sort of first published game experience, right? That, that I think a lot of, whether you're a 20 time published designer or just trying to get your first game published, it's, there's nothing quite like the first game that actually gets signed and and goes somewhere. Um, And interestingly enough, like I had signed a game when I was a freelance designer called gem hens, a game my brother and I designed, but the first game that actually came out, that was like a first big release for me was court of the dead mourners call. And this is the game that actually got me my job at the op. So basically what happened, I had been pitching games to the op for a while, running on pubs in, in the San Diego area and, and getting other designers together. And the op staff would come out, check out what we were play testing and all that kind of stuff. And they reached out to me one day and they said, hey, we, we signed on this IP called Court of the Dead and we want to do a hobby game for it. We think it's a little bit more in your wheelhouse for design and we just don't have the the capacity i mean the app makes a lot of games in a year they said we just don't have the capacity to do it in-house we need an outside inventor would you be interested and of course like any of us what i said yes uh tell me more um and and i went out mm-hmm. to the op and, and kind of did a little interview thing to you know talk about the project and and figure out you know what they were looking for um and they actually called me that was a wednesday they called me on friday and said what if you just worked here full time and so I very quickly uh, went, hmm, yeah, okay, yep, let's do that, um, and, and quit my job and went to work at the app full-time working on, uh, really, I, I had two projects when I started, Court of the Dead Mourner's Call and Rick and Morty Risk. Those were my, my first two games that they gave me. Ah, um, And, okay. you know, somebody who grew up playing Hasbro games, of course, it's just fun to be trusted to dabble in the Risk universe. And, and I was a big Rick and Morty fan at the time. It's just like, okay, now I get to mess with that story and that IP and do all that. But Court of the Dead, I think, was the mm-hmm. one that just really stretched my design muscles in in ways that nothing had before because it's a deep 
kind of lore graphic novel series. It now has a novel trilogy. I think the first book is out. The second one's coming soon. And there wasn't a ton of knowledge of it, but there was a ton of content like known by the creator, Tom Gilliland, who is the chief creative officer over at Sideshow Collectibles, the company that makes like, you know, if you want a life-size film accurate Iron Man statue for your house, they've got it. You know, they're, they're, yeah, they make some incredible collectible figures, you know, work with a lot of cool celebrities and do all kinds of stuff. So Tom is the, the chief creative officer over there and he created the court of the dead universe. And what made this project so special is I got to work with him directly. So I I was talking about licensed product earlier. And it's like a lot of times you're working with a, a team of employees who represent a license and kind of give you the guidelines. But Tom is the creator of this world and wanted to be involved in the project. And on top of that, he's a big miniatures gamer. So like he plays uh, bolt action, which is a big world war two, like miniatures. Um, oh, wow. You know, tabletop game and a phenomenal miniatures painter and, and collector and everything else. So I got to work with him directly to kind of understand this world and bring that game to life. Right. Like, and, and figure out, and, and it took it to a level that you don't often get when you're thinking about theme is like, you'd be like, okay, well, this character, we need them in the game. Here's some things you need to know about this character from novels that aren't published yet. This is their story arc. This is who hmm. they are as a person. This is what's important to their character. This is what their arc is going to be. And then we would distill that down into a single card directive, right? Like this character does okay. this thing in the game, because when you read three novels from now, you'll understand how important this is. I mean, it was just such deep lore that we were right. able to infuse into the game and really understanding the motives of this universe, which uh, for those that don't know Court of the Dead, and, and I don't know how familiar you both are, but the sort of story is that heaven and hell are in, locked in this eternal war, and they create death. And death's role is to harvest souls that are turned into fuel that heaven and hell use to fuel their war with each other. So like, the, the afterlife is you become basically ammunition for this war. That's it. you know. And death unbeknownst to heaven and hell has a conscience and sort of like, that's terrible. I don't want to do that anymore. So he secretly starts siphoning off particular souls that he thinks are going to be most useful to him. And he forms the court of the dead. And then with that recruits more people that are known as mourners. So he sort of gives them an afterlife in his underworld with the eventual goal that he is going to rise up and overthrow heaven and hell. Right. So that's the the sort of story arc that's going on. The problem with that is, all of these different people that are in the court of the dead, they have factions. There's a bone faction and flesh and, and uh, spirit, and they have different motives. And then individuals within those have different motives because all of these characters are based on deceased humans. So we all have our own sort of flaws. And that's very prominent mm-hmm. in the story of like, they all agree to the greater purpose, but they all want to be the hero when that purpose is achieved. Mm-hmm. And so the game has this like, you've got to balance these things that are for the good of everybody, but it's definitely a competitive game and can be very cutthroat when it's like, yeah, I'm going to get us there and I'm going to be the hero, but I'm going to throw you under the bus in the process. Right. I'm going to, and sometimes doing those mm-hmm. things puts us all at risk that everything can implode. Um, so it was really fun to, to kind of bring all that to life, but the sort of the memories that stand out from the process, in addition to that sort of interactive play testing development process, it's like when you have a game and, it's to this scale. It's a big miniatures game. It's got like 70 some miniatures in the box. Like it's doesn't fit on a Calic shelf because the box had to be too big to hold everything. It's like, we, we launched on Kickstarter. It's the only Kickstarter I've ever done. That, and it's the only one the op has ever done. And there's that moment where you're all sitting around the table and you're like, we're going to launch. 
we're, we're doing this thing. Like it's, it's going to be real. You know, and you, you have that moment and you're like, and then yeah. you sort of have that like pause of, is anyone going to back this? You know, and then the, the numbers start coming in and it starts climbing up and the excitement goes. Um, but really for me, like that's so removed, right? Like people are excited. They're backing it. They are not in the room with you, right? Like you are looking at a computer number ticker go up. And while that's very exciting and you get the comments and the engagement there, there's nothing like the, the first run of shows we did, right? So the the year that we were really promoting it, ah. we went to San Diego Comic-Con because that's sideshows. Like they have a humongous booth. They really pull out all the stops. That's their their spot. Yeah. We had the game in a big display case. We were doing like uh, a opportunity to, it was like a contest. If you won the contest, you got a bunch of free swag. You got to play Court of the Dead with me and with Tom and like get to ask all these questions of, you know, the creator of this universe and that has a lot of fans. So like people were competing for that. And then we got like a very different side. Mm-hmm. You had like all the comic fans at Comic-Con who like were very interested in the world. And then we brought it to Gen Con and people were like, okay, I like blood rage. I like rising sun. Like this game feels like it's sort of adjacent. And in order to demo a game like this, you can't just do like a 10 minute, like here's how it works. It's like, Hey, do you want to sit down for an hour and a half of Gen Con in the booth and like play this whole game with us? But we were, we were a little worried about that. And in fact, there were some people on the op staff who were like, I can't demo that. Like, that's like, they're like, I will demo Telestrations, but I will not demo Court of the Dead. It's, it's a lot of game, right? And so I sent my brother the rule book because he, he volunteers with us every Gen Con. He works in our booth. Um, and I was like, hey, can you learn this game you've never played and run demos at Gen Con? <laughs> so he read the rule book before the show. I mean, the game wasn't available out yet. We were still like fulfilling the Kickstarter. He came to the show. He sat there and watched me run one demo. And because we're so like-minded, he was like, yep, I got it. And then just went to the next table and almost like parroted word for word the demo I just ran at the next table. And so like wow. the two of us were just doing these back and forth, like hour and a half demos. And the signups filled like immediately. Like people would rush to the booth in the morning, sign up for their time slot, come back, play the full demo. We had one guy, um, the guy I'm still friends with, his name's John McCain, not that John McCain. He actually, <laughs> You're still friends with him. Yeah. <laughs> Passed away yeah. a little bit ago. Go so, uh, so he actually enjoyed it so much. He signed up for a second demo to come back and play it again because it was like he had to wait to get his copy because it was still fulfilling the Kickstarter. He's like, no, I got to play this again while I can. So just having that like in-person hype around a game that you worked on and really it being like the first game that I put out to the public was just such a memorable experience that it's mm-hmm. like you almost chase that for like the rest of your career in a way because it's easy like working mm-hmm. behind the scenes so much of of what we do is like oh yeah we got this logistics delay and we're dealing with this thing and i gotta you know cost reduce to get this game to the srp i want and make sure the marketing beat goes out on time and you know you're sort of shepherding the whole process and trying to make sure the games get out there and, and that people enjoy them and then you're dealing with like the customer service thing of like people have rules questions and, and all of that it's easy to like lose a little bit of that initial like how good it felt to like make something and have people experience mm-hmm. it and not hate it right like that's always the imposter syndrome of like yes i can't believe this publisher is going to put my game out because what if everybody thinks it's terrible and it's like you, you sort of ride that wave for a while and then I think with each successive one, it's it's sort of hard to recapture that a little bit, but um, still a lot of fun to, to put out a new game. But there's always that, like, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I, I never quite got past that. What if everybody hates it? <laughs> you know, it's like, what what if I made the worst game ever? And, like, you're just waiting for, like, a Tom Bassel or somebody to, to put out their review and be like, this designer's an idiot. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, that, what, that's an interesting feeling because, you know, I've only ever had one game out. 
as of right now. It's my the expansion I did for Castillo Games' Guns of Treasure. And, you know, when Tom Vassell did his review of that, he's you know, he gave Guns of Treasure, you know, a six point five, which is, you know, I I'm content with that. I just I just did the development work for that. What really made me feel good though is that he talked about the expansion which I co designed and he said he actually liked that better than the base game. He didn't give it a score nice. or anything, but it was kind of like I was extremely worried that with the expansion I messed up the whole game with my ideas that I put into there. But he actually liked them. He didn't no, no official rating, but like I understand that feeling very minutely. Not as big of a scale as probably you do. But no, I think it's a legit feeling lots of designers feel. And I also think probably lots of publishers feel like, are we producing the worst game ever? Like, it's a thing. Well, it, it's a super competitive market, right? Like how many new games are coming out a year, whether you're working with an IP or you're doing hobby games just for very demanding hobby gamers. Like the competition is is steep to put out quality product. Mm-hmm. And there's always that, like, you you want to have the game that wins awards. You want to, you know, have a game that sells and is successful. If it's an inventor game, we want to do right by the inventor and make their game the best thing it can be. But I think that imposter syndrome sticks around for a lot of us. And, and the desire for validation, you know, as, as I was listening to to Alan talk about his, his Spiel of the R story, it's like, I mean, the, you can't beat that, right? I think that's why we all want that is like when you talk about validation, there's really not a bigger one in our industry for designers than having somebody go, you did it. You were the best game this year. This is the definitive trophy that says you're good at what you do. And until that happens, you're kind of yes. like, it's even when you get a good review, sometimes it's like, ah, well, yeah, that, that reviewer's just being nice. And it's like, they're not. But, you know, it's, you kind of talk yourself into these things sometimes of like, I don't know, I haven't really done it yet, but. I, I almost feel like if, if I ever did win the spiel, I'd be like, oh, it must have been an off year. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, Andrew, how are you feeling with, like, you have a couple games that are coming out with 25th Century and some other things that I know I can't say yeah. yet. But how are you feeling right now with, you know, some of the things that Pat and I have brought up? I just can't wait for my game to be in the hands of the public. Like, that's that's what it is. And it's, as a creator, like, the worst thing is that knowing that it's going to happen, but it's going to happen next year in two years in whatever, how much time it takes for these whole things to process. That's the part that's painful. But that said, I do have that much to look forward to, but yes, I, I really just want, I'm so jonesing to have this game be in the public that I, I just want my prototype and then I'm going to go to the first convention I can do it. And I'm going to play test the game with the prototype, like the actual physical pieces. And I'm going to market the hell out of it just by being there and, and showing everybody I can come, please play the game. Please play my game. <laughs> and I think what's really going off about with spiel and delivering out good games, something that really helps, I think us designers and I think publishers in general is when the publishers have a very clear mission about what they do. Like yeah. I think if, if, if if me as a designer, if I know what a publisher does, it kind of you know, alleviates some of that tension. Like for instance, the op, I know the op wants these type of games because that's what they produce. I know if that, if they sign one of my games, that's those head games, I can trust them with it. Whereas there's some other publishers out there that have made great games, but I have no idea what they're going to do next because they really, mm. they, they like somebody's like, Oh, what do you kind of gives you? We make great games that look great on table. Okay, fine. That's, that's what, that's what every publisher should do. I mean, there's, there's no <laughs> publisher out there. Who's like, we want to make, you know, horrible games that look terrible when you put it down. It's like, well, you know, like 
I, it's, no, there's no – unless, Pat, you know something that I don't know. Like 20 – like companies that I know have a clear mission all play. The Op, Awaken Realms. Even the, even though I don't play Awaken Realms games, I don't play because I know what kind of games they're going to produce. They're just not for me. I, I mean yeah. – if that's just I don't know. Am I missing something here, Pat? Is that what do you think of that? What are your thoughts on that observation? Yeah, I, I think it's astute. It's you know, part of the reason about geez, a year and a half, almost two years ago now, we had a very poignant internal discussion about who we are as a company, right? Because at, at one point, sort of internally, the app was like, "Will we make a game for everybody?" And it was kind of true, right? Like, if you want to a laugh out loud party game for a group of 12, we got Talistrations. You want a licensed clue game that celebrates your favorite IP, we've got you. You want a hobby game, we got that too. Um, but what was challenging is we did all of that with one line planning team. So one team had to pick all the IPs that went on the Hasbro games. They had to pick what party games we were going to make. We had to pick what hobby games we were going to make. And then that list of like, here's the stuff we're making funneled to the development team, which was my team to say, okay, make all these games work. Then we handed it off to the art team who had to make them look good and so on. And we sort of said, this is, these are competing things for different audiences. We restructured into three verticals. So there is a party team that has developers. It has a, a equivalent to me who is the director of party who helps pick and, and sort of steer the process of what types of party games do we make? And all they think about is party games. And they have marketing on that team and they have art on that team. And, and they just have like, it's almost like a small company onto itself that only makes really good party games of a particular style, right? Then we have a co-brand team whose whole role it is to find the great games you love and pair them with the IPs that people love, right? So they're continuing a lot of the partnerships we have, but also exploring new ones that you'll be hearing about in the near future, some new games we're bringing into the fold where we're doing what we've always done, which is what if we reimagined your great game in the Harry Potter universe, in the Marvel universe, and whatever it may be, and that really freed up me and my team to say, okay, what is it that the hobby gamer audience wants? Who within that audience is our target consumer? And I always tell people, like, it's hobby ambassadors. Like, I want people who listen to podcasts like this, who buy all the games like we do. I want to make the games that those people confidently bring to almost any game night because they know the theme, the art, the gameplay will draw in the most curmudgeon experienced gamers and, and surprise them but will also be approachable for the those friends who are like, I will play your board games. I don't buy them though. You know, we all have those friends who are happy to come to game yeah. night and they just expect you to be sort of the, uh, the sommelier of game night and present them games. And there's no better feeling than when you do that and everybody walks away loving the game you picked. And some of them are like, where can I buy it? Mm -hmm. Right? Like that's the win. And yes. I want, yeah, I want op win. games to be those games that like you you host your game night and people walk away going, I need my own copy because I'm going to remember how to play that when I get home. I think not every company has that clear direction because a lot of it's like a lot of hobby publishers are started by people who love hobby games. And a lot of people who love hobby games love a lot of kind of games. They love party games. They love heavy games. They love midway. They love gateway. And when you're a small, nimble publisher with maybe, you know, three staff, if you fall in love with a game, you want to make that game and there's maybe not as much mm -hmm. emphasis on well does that fit our brand identity it's like this is a great game it deserves to be made and i want to be the one to do it and that's not a bad approach mm -hmm. to the business like you, especially if you're only going to do one game a year it better be a slam dunk great game so you're going to go after it regardless of yes. like if it fits within, within a mold because if we do more product i think we're able to 
focus more and say, you know, sometimes we see a great game and go, wow, that's great. It's not for us. And that's really hard to do, but it, in the long run, I think it will help us form a stronger fan base of people who are like, yep, the op is my go-to publisher. Like that's my goal within the hobby market is to have more people saying then that than are right now. Um, and I think other, other publishers are maybe saying, I think this is the best game I've seen all year. I just want to make the best game I've seen all year and, and hopefully win some awards. So different approaches. Awesome. Well, we are really deep down here in the op sea, talking about all sorts of wonderful things. Let's go ahead and put on our sonar and talk about what we were looking forward to playing in the future. On the sonar, we talk about one game we are very happy to have either on our table waiting for us to play or something we're looking to buy that's coming up. So I'll go ahead and kick this off again, though. I recently purchased a game that I actually found out Origins, maybe two years ago. It was either PAX or Origins. It might have been PAX. I forgot which one. But it's called Mycelium, a mushling game. And the reason mm-hmm. I have this game is my wife saw it was like, <gasps> those mushrooms are adorable. And they are. The, the cover <laughs> art in this game is adorable little mushrooms called mushlings that are sentient. And, you know, nothing terrifies me more than sentient mushrooms after playing The Last of Us and doing all that wonderful stuff. Yes, yes. <laughs> but these are cute sentient mushrooms, so it's okay. I have no idea how to play this game yet. I've been told it's very similar to Catan and lots of route building and stuff like that. Only problem is it's a general consensus that doesn't play as well at two players. So I'm going to have to enlist okay. some people to come and play it with. But I'm going to try it at two players first to see how it goes out. But, you know... I'm excited because my wife is excited. My wife loves playing games mm-hmm. with me, but it's not too often she gets like super excited about a game. Like she's like, oh yeah, I love games. Like the last game I think she got super excited about was Sleeping Gods, which we're working our way through our campaign still now. And this is the nice. next one. So I want to make sure that because she indulges me in my hobbies, I indulge her in the games that she's excited about too. So that's Mycelium, a mushling game. Pat. Yeah, as we all know, sorry, the ahead, sharing sorry. of joy I was going to say, as we all know, the sharing of joy is part of the hobby, right? Like you can't play the games yourself. You got to play with people and you have to have those people be excited to want to play more. So yeah, I, I agree. That's a great way to go ahead and find new games and try new things as well. Pat, what are you looking forward to playing? So I, uh, I got to go to Essen for the first time this year. Um, yeah, okay. right. Um, what, what it, it was actually the first stop of my honeymoon, which is, you know, you, you know, you, you pick the right partner. When Amazing. You're like, Let's kick off the honeymoon at Essen. Um, of course, I was working, but um, so I bought a lot of games as as you do. And I really tried to focus on games I didn't think I'd be able to get here as easily in the States because, mm-hmm. you know, shipping games back from Germany is expensive. And one of the games I picked up is called Stitch for Stitch. It's a German game. Um, and the reason I got it is that trick takers are hot right now. Like a lot of publishers are putting out trick takers and, yes. and we're putting a lot of emphasis on figuring out like, as we're looking at inventor games and things like that, which ones are different, which ones stand out and do something fresh. And this one is take the deduction of clue and put it together with classic trick taking and you've got stitch for stitch. So oh. the way this game works, one player is knows who who the suspect is and what the weapon is, right? There's no location. It's just suspect and weapon. There's seven weapons. There's four suspects. That player and all of the other players are playing a trick-taking game. And the cards all have a suspect, a number, and a weapon on them. So everybody plays a card out into the trick. And then the player who knows the solution 
determines which card wins the trick and the hierarchy that they use. Oh, I already like that. If, if a card has the weapon and the suspect, it's double trump, right? That card will win. And then mm -hmm. if there's two cards that have that, the highest value, right? The next tier down is cards with the weapon. The tier after that is cards that don't have the weapon but have the suspect. And then after that, it's highest value of the cards in play. So everybody plays a card, and the person who knows the solution gets to play their card last. And the trick, they also get more cards in hand to start the round. And then the that player will say, okay, this card wins the trick. Then every other player will hand them a weapon token and a suspect token face down as their guess. I think it's this person with this weapon. And they will say either, yes, you're correct, or no, you're not correct, but they won't tell you why you're wrong and give your tokens back. When okay. you solve the mystery, you score points based on how many cards are left in your hand. You start with seven cards. So if, if you solve it on the first one, you have six cards left, you yeah. get six points. But then you keep playing until everyone has solved the mystery. And if it gets to the end and there's a player who hasn't solved, then the, the person who knows the answer gets eight points. Otherwise, they get points based on when the last person solves it. Everybody gets points on, based on how quickly they mm -hmm. solve it. But you also get points for every trick that you win. So now if you solve early, you've got this interesting sort of like, well, I know what the Trump suit is. Nobody else knows what Trump suit is. But if I play to win every trick for, to get those points, I'm going to very quickly give away what the Trump suit is because I'm playing like high Trumps and things like that. So mm -hmm. you have to kind of manipulate a little bit how you do that. And the gameplay is where everybody takes one turn as the person who knows the solution. So you play, it's seven hands per trick. If you have a four-player game, you play four rounds of seven tricks, and then whoever has the most points wins. And to me, this was just like, I love deduction. I love trick-taking. I was like, what a clever way to put it together. Every kind of criticism I thought I was going to have reading yeah. the rules, I was like, I don't know, maybe it won't work. But So I've read the rules, I've set it up, and I have not played it. But uh, my brother's in town this weekend, so I think that's probably going to be like the first thing we get to the table. I'm pretty pumped about it. So that's uh, Stitch for Stitch. Yeah, just your first description already solved me. I, I, I want to try this, so that's awesome. So I, I want to hear how it is, and... If I can't get it here, I'm going to force you to bring it to the next convention. We'll play it. There. Fair enough. It's pretty pretty travel size, so I'll make sure to bring it along. All right. So what I've been playing, or what I'm looking forward to playing, is After Us. That's the one where humans are gone and apes are becoming sentient and finding all of our artifacts, like boom boxes and can openers and stuff like that. And it's a deck building game with adjacency bonuses. So you have your own personal deck, you draw cards, and then you line the cards up in a row, trying to form things that match with other things. And you get to collect those and open-ended spots don't collect anything. So I'm very curious to see how this one plays. I've heard a lot of good things, had a lot of buzz at uh, Gen Con. So I'm very curious to see how this actually plays for me. Well, excellent. I hope you enjoy your monkey business. My instruments are extremely, extremely going crazy. I think I need to take the sub in for repairs. Let's go ahead and shoot right back up to the surface, and we'll send Pat on his way. Pat! I believe we could have talked for hours. I really do think that. We could, yes. But we we are generally, you know, we're not a long podcast, sadly. But I really appreciate all the stories, the wisdom, and everything you have put out for our, our short time here on the Tabletop Submarine. If people want to support you or they want to support the op, what can they do? Sure, they can follow the op, uh, the op games on most social media platforms. Um, check out, obviously, we have our big Gnome Hollow announcement is out on Polygon, and Mojo Nation has some uh, coverage there as well. You can check out the Art Project and Harry Potter Unmasked the Death Eaters, which is a social deduction Harry Potter game. 
that is also just coming out. And uh, you can also follow me if, if you think I have anything worthwhile to say. I've got a TikTok channel where I put out some information about games I'm playing as well as advice and, and some info for game designers. And that's at Dr. Pat Makes Games. Very nice. Excellent. Hopefully soon we'll be able to get Ammon on the podcast to talk about your big Gnome Hollow game. And we're just excited to continue to see what the op is going to bring to our wonderful hobby. Andrew, any parting words for our dear Voyagers? Merry Christmas and take down Nakatomi Plaza. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love it when I put him on the spot like that. It makes me happy. So (laughs) anyways, as always, my name is Josh. I'm Andrew. I'm Pat. And this has been Tabletop Submarine. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the Tabletop Summary Podcast, please consider giving us five stars on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends, family, and other gamers in your life. See you on the next voyage.